Okay, if you would please turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. I'll be reading Luke 22, verses 19 and 20. <clears throat> Luke 22, verses 19 and 20. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Father, I pray that in our partaking of the bread and the cup this morning and as we do it throughout our lifetimes as believers in the local church, You would cause deeper, greater meaning. And thus, You would cause our hearts in a deeper way to be prepared to receive the bread and the cup and the impact of Your special grace by the Holy Spirit. To the glory of Jesus, our sacrifice. Amen. Last week, in what I think is a three-part series at least, at this point, last week, in this series on the Lord's Supper, we went into a time machine to go back into the first century. We went back into this text to try to feel this Passover meal in some obscure upper room on an obscure street in Jerusalem where Jesus ate it with His twelve. And if you haven't heard that sermon, please go back and listen to it. Now, sermon number two is to notice that He said at the Last Supper... Do this in remembrance of Me. It is those words that are the reason the church has always, for the last 2,000 years, and we do today, celebrate over and over and over again the bread and the cup. It is the reason that this, called communion or the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, is one of two ordinances that Jesus gave for the church to practice. But, throughout church history, over the last 2,000 years, there has been much debate, and division, and disagreements over the Lord's Supper. The question, in other words, is, as the church, as believers gathered in the local assemblies partake of the bread and of the cup, what is really going on there? As we saw last week in the text, historically on that night, the original Lord's Supper in the upper room, Jesus took the bread of the Passover lamb and He interpreted it saying, this 
refers to my body. It's given up for you in sacrifice, which that next day he will die. He says, Take it, guys. Eat it. And then stop for me. You've got to understand what's going on here in the culture. It's a sacrifice. They're very familiar with the temple and the animal sacrifices still going on. And for the differing reasons and occasions, you can read in the Old Testament, they would bring their lamb or they would bring their bull or they would bring their whatever they're going to bring. And as it's sacrificed, and then it's thrown and burnt in the burnt offering, not all of it. A lot of that's really good meat. And the priest were to eat of it. And the people of their sacrifice get a portion of it and they eat, signifying their consumption of that sacrifice, of their fellowship with the altar, with the sacrifice. And here's Jesus saying, this is My body, the Lamb of God, this sacrifice, broken for you. Take Eat it. When He did that, He was giving to His disciples, not just the twelve, but all through the ages, He's giving to His disciples a sign of their ongoing, outward sign of their consumption, their participation, their intimate fellowship with Him as the sacrificial Lamb. And, after having said to the apostles that night, do this in remembrance of Me, they made that essential teaching as they planted churches. Early, early on, as the Gospel goes out from the Jews to the Samaritans to the Gentiles and the uttermost parts of the earth, they are all regularly celebrating this ritual. So, for instance, in the 50's, after Paul He's been on a couple missionary journeys. He writes to the church in the city of Corinth, predominantly Gentile, and he's trying to correct things. But this is what we get in 1 Corinthians 11.23. So this is just assume. Listen to it. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, Corinthian church, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks he broke it and said, This is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way, He also took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So it's happening from the get-go. And so this morning, in part two of this series, what I want to do is follow the history of theology of the Lord's Supper that came before us to give a probably a way too brief flyover of the last 2,000 years on the question, what is happening when 
we do this. And then at the end, I want to get to the core of what I think is of what we are doing and what the meaning is as we together partake of the bread and of the cup. And so, what we do know, as we saw in 1 Corinthians, they're doing this early on. And what we also know from other literature that beginning in the very first century itself, there was this thing the churches were celebrating called the agape feast. Meaning agape is the Greek word for love. Love, feast, or meals. Table fellowship. Actual eating food. We're hungry, we eat, we talk, we fellowship. was really important in the early church. And with what became known as the agape feast, the Lord's Supper was included in that. Once they're done eating, talking and fellowshipping and hanging after they have services or preaching and singing, they then at the end would take the special bread and the cup, pray over them, and consume them. That's what's happening early on. And so now when you go to just a few years after the last apostle dies, John, probably within ten years of his death, there's a document that, the, that, that is not in the New Testament, but it's an early church document called the Didache. Greek word for the teaching. The Didache laid out basic church practices that were going on by the year 100 when it was written. And in the Didache, it says, quote, They are to take the cup and pray over it and then the bread. And then the Didache goes on to say, in doing this, the church is one bread in communion. This idea of fellowship with one another in the body was core to them. The early church father, Ignatius, bishop of Antioch, who eventually was martyred in Rome. And on his journey to Rome, he was writing a number of letters to churches. In one of his letters, and this is about the year 100-110 A.D., Ignatius writes, Make certain, therefore, that you all observe one common Eucharist. Now, that, that word was used for the Lord's Supper early on. Because remember, we saw last week, when the text says he gave thanks, that's the Greek word eucharisteo. And therefore, the Lord's Supper early on began to be referred to as the Eucharist. So, make certain, therefore, he says, that you all observe one common Eucharist, for there is but one body of our Lord Jesus Christ, and but one cup of union with his blood. And one single altar of sacrifice. So Ignatius, who knew the Apostle John very intimately, he was a student of his, the next generation, Ignatius clearly saw that the life and the unity and the fellowship of the local church revolved around the Lord's Supper. Then into about 150 A.D., Justin, martyr, it's not his last name, they gave that to him after he died, he was a martyr. Justin was a very smart guy, very well educated, a philosopher. And he comes to Christ. He is 
known by many of us as the first apologist for Christianity in church history. With Justin, he, he gives us comments that lets us know that the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist was now separated from the agape feast, the love feast. It had its own special part in the service and it was always to be followed by the reading of Scripture and prayers and preaching and then the Lord's Supper. And according to Justin, his idea was that this is a memorial meal that in some way we are eating the body and the blood of the Lord when we partake. You move to the end of the 2nd century, 190, around the year 200. And it is there where it starts to become clear in church history that the Lord's Supper took a turn more and more towards the mystical. The church father, Irenaeus, wrote, quote, as the bread which comes from the earth when it receives the invocation of God, calling upon God over the bread, it is no longer common bread, but the Eucharist being made of two things, an earthly and a heavenly. So also our bodies, when they receive the Eucharist, are no longer corruptible, but have the hope of resurrection unto eternal life. And so, around the year 200 then, slowly over decades and centuries, the idea that a specific priesthood, remember priesthood has to do with death and blood, sacrifice, and the Eucharist is getting more and more of this sacrifice kind of idea. So the idea of a priesthood to invoke God's blessing and something happening over bread and over wine started to develop. That's what's happening. You go a few hundred more years and then around the year 600. The Bishop of Rome is Gregory. He's known as Gregory the Great. Really, in my opinion, lots of people's opinion, if you want to understand the history of the papacy or the idea of Pope, it's really with Gregory around the 600 right there where it started. Where the bishop of Rome was the bishop of bishops of all the other places. And this idea of preeminence is where it really began. Well, Gregory established now more firmly, instead of just practice, the difference between what people were doing in practice as opposed to official doctrine. Gregory established the doctrine that Christ's body in blood are really present in the bread and in the wine. And therefore, when one feeds upon the bread and the wine, they nourish and strengthen their spiritual life. Okay. That's what's going on. Now you get to the ninth century, in the eight hundreds, mid to late eight hundreds, there arose a heated argument and debate within the Roman church, which is our roots, guys. If you're a Westerner, it's your roots. If we're a Protestant, it's your roots. You can't get around it. You'd be naive to think you can. And there arose this debate between two theologians, Robertus 
and ratchemness. Robertus was stressing the real connection between the Eucharistic bread and the actual historical human body of Jesus. Essentially saying, the real physical presence was in the bread and in the wine. And the miracle of that happening happens when the priest says the words, this is My body. And holds the bread up. It is then that the bread is changed into the body of Jesus Christ. It is then that the cup of wine is changed into the blood of Christ. Okay, so that's going on. Ratchemness says no. But, but the Lord's Supper has symbolic spiritual meaning to it. He says, you're nuts! The physical presence of Jesus' body is not there when we partake. And so that debate's going on. And guess who won the day? Eventually, over the next couple of centuries, it was that the body and the blood of Jesus are actually the bread and the wine. Or the bread and the wine are actually, better way to say it, no longer bread and wine, but transformed into the physical body and blood of Jesus. That mystical, miraculous transformation theology of the Eucharist won the day. It eventually, it still wasn't at that point, but it eventually became known as transubstantiation. Trans. Change. Of the substance, of the essence of the bread and the wine are totally changed into something other than what they were. That word, transubstantiation, was used for the first time in the year 1134. So if you do your math, it's about 1,100 years after Christ actually did the Lord's Supper. Transubstantiation, the doctrine, became official in the Roman Church in the year 1215 at the Lateran Council. Let me quote from that Council of 1215. They said, quote, By divine power, bread and wine are transubstantiated into the body and the blood. Yeah. Then, more than 300 years later, you're going through the Renaissance and the Reformation happens beginning in the early 1500s. And in response to the protest or the Protestant Reformation of the church getting way off was finally the Roman church's council in response to it called the Council of Trent in the 1500s. And the Council of Trent says 
the changing of the whole substance of the bread into the body and of the whole substance of the wine into the blood of Jesus Christ. The appearance of bread and wine alone remaining. They're not bread and wine is what they're saying. They appear it. They taste like it. They smell like it. But they, in essence, are no longer bread and wine. That's why in my growing up years as a Roman Catholic, it was a mortal sin to miss Mass without a valid excuse. See, Mass is not, if you get real technical, it's not the church service. It's a part of the church service. It's the core part of the church service. After uh, readings and, and liturgy and songs and a homily, then there's the part of the service called the Mass. This sacrifice. The priest who has the proper ordination, using the proper words, lifting up the bread, and saying, this is My body. Something happened. It was changed. It was trans, changed, substantiated, or changed in its substance or essence. It's no longer bread. It's Jesus' flesh. It's no longer wine. It's Jesus' blood. That's the core of why in Roman doctrine you miss that. That's your life. That's a kind of sin that will kill your salvation. You'll need penance and to come back to faith. Now, one of the preeminent Roman Catholic theologians of the 20th century, Ludwig Ott, he puts it this way. So this is how a strong... Roman Catholic theologian says it. Quote, Christ becomes present in the sacrament of the altar by the transformation of the whole substance of the bread into His body and of the whole substance of the wine into His blood. This transformation is called transubstantiation. The power of consecration resides in a validly consecrated priest only. The worship of adoration must be given to Christ who is present in the Eucharist. It follows from the wholeness and permanence of the real presence that the absolute worship of adoration is due to Christ in the Eucharist. The bread, the wine, or the body. And the blood. See, this is why when I was growing up in the Roman Catholic Church that we lay people we're not allowed to drink the cup. It's too risky. Just everywhere in hundreds of thousands of churches throughout 
the world every week and really every day. Give them the cup to drink. It's not wine. It's literally Jesus' physical blood to dribble down their chins and fall to the floor. No. This is why when we receive the body of Christ in a little wafer that was placed on our tongue by a priest, there's an altar boy shoving something, a piece of metal plate under our chin. Got to be really careful with what we're doing. All right. So, let me just summarize then up to this point what had happened with the Lord's Supper and what is till today still the Roman Catholic doctrine of the Lord's Supper. The baker bakes the bread. It's bread, 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 bread. The wineries produce wine. It's wine, wine, wine. And it comes into the place where they're going to celebrate Mass, and during that Mass, the priest speaks special words producing a sacrifice at that altar when those elements of bread and wine are transubstantiated, changed. Meaning, the essence, the substance of bread and wine is changed into the very substance of the physical body and blood of Jesus. While, I'm not going to lose most of you here, not, it's okay. You can go back and listen to it. But while, that happens while the accidents of bread and wine remain the same. Now, accidents is a philosophical term from Aristotle. It doesn't mean there is a car crash. Okay. See, here's a chair. Here's a black chair. The blackness to the chair is not the essence of the chair. It's an accident of the chair. You can, you can make it a pink chair and a blue chair and it's still a chair, it's a chair, it's a chair, it's a chair. It's not at the core and the essence of chairness and neither is the metal. It can be an all wood chair and it's still a chair. A chair is a chair, is a chair, is a chair. The accidents may change. It doesn't change the essence. And this is really the reasoning behind some smart, Christian people like Thomas Aquinas with Aristotelian theology saying that's how we understand it. I know it still tastes like wine. It tastes like bread and smells like bread and feels like bread and tastes like wine. Yes, those are the accidents, but the very essence of what those things are change. They flip the whole thing around. I don't think it makes any sense, but that's what they are saying. Okay? And that's true today. So now let's go backwards again to the 1500s. Because all of this was set by the 1200s with the practicing, 13, 14, 15. And we go back to the Great Reformation. And what's happening? Besides the Reformation being birthed by getting back to the text of Scripture, getting back to the Bible, letting Paul be Paul, Letting Luke be Luke. And letting it challenge anything that has come before that says this is what you ought to believe. Either affirm it or reject it. Well, it was hard to do in the Roman church because one of the official doctrines was is that the tradition when the church speaks on theology and sets it, then it's on a par with Scripture. And Scripture is just equal with it. It's not above it. 
But so at the core of the Reformation was sola scriptura. No, no, no. Tradition is as good as it is. We had to learn from it. There's smart people that live before us, but it is not infallible as Scripture is. Core principle of the Protestant Reformation. Justification by faith. Saying, no, the church is teaching that a person gets saved by grace plus their works. It's not what the New Testament teaches. Totally agree with him. Teaches justification by faith. Okay, along with these core things of the Reformation, what was happening in the Eucharist and that theology was huge also to the Reformers. All the Reformers rejected what you just heard. Rejected transubstantiation. It's not what Jesus was teaching, is their argument. Now, of course, one of the most famous reformers and important reformers was Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a priest. He was a, an Augustinian monk. That's why if you know his story, while he's, his whole process of coming to Christ and the Bible hitting him, this, he was tormented in his very first time to having to perform the Mass, to say the words, this is my body. In Latin, he, he just freaked out. He was so fearful of God. What, so, so what I'm going to say, I think you've got to appreciate people in, from their culture. Okay, you just can look at what you're going to hear here and say, oh, come on. But got to appreciate Luther coming from his culture. So, but what Luther taught, and thus Lutheranism, down to the day, Luther says, no, this is my body. Jesus said it. It has to be taken in some way, literally, to His body. To His physical body. And so His view is that the bread and the wine do not get transubstantiated. They do not become something other than what they are. That is, Jesus' body and blood. But, Jesus' physical body and blood are there. They're present with, in, and under the bread and the wine. They're not, the bread and the wine are not changed into His body, the physical body. They're present in, with, and under. Or in other words, con, the word for with. In. They, in other words, when the invocation of God comes over the Eucharist, then the Eucharist is con with substantiated. A miracle of Christ's physical presence is there within and under the bread. Very different than transubstantiated. Now, here, here, now here's an example. Maybe you can kind of get it because it's kind of difficult to get what he's trying to say. It's, it's like water absorbed up into a sponge. The sponge is not the water. The water is in, with, on, under the sponge. But there's water and there's a sponge and there's two distinct things. The bread and the wine are not the water or the body. 
body is with in and under the bread and the wine as water is with the sponge. And so wherever the sponge is, if there's a sponge there, there's water. Though the sponge is not water. Wherever the Eucharist is, the body and the blood of Jesus are there. And this kind of Luther's, you know, lot of great, great theology and great work and very entertaining character. But it did force him to do something I think is nuts. Because he real he's a smart guy. And so Luther with that, in the debates with other reformers, had to push for what is known as the ubiquity of Christ's physical humanity. Which I just think is nuts. Because if you've got a Lutheran church over here, and a Lutheran church over there, and a Lutheran church over there, and they're all celebrating communion every Sunday, how could Christ be present? He's got to be everywhere. His human nature is the issue. Not the Spirit, who is everywhere, okay, but His human nature. So now, another leading reformer then, one of Luther's contemporaries from Switzerland, in what we now look back and call the Reformed movement as opposed to the Lutheran movement, and they had a lot of agreement on many things and then disagreements on stuff like this. Uh, his name was Zwingli, said, Luther, you're nuts. This is crazy that Jesus' physical body and blood are there. When Jesus said, this is my body, He meant this represents my body. It signifies my body being offered for you. And the reform movement with John Calvin comes along and it, it pushes a little bit more than what Zwingli wanted to do with just pure memorial, but understood a very real presence of God the Holy Spirit in the communion service. So, in other words, and this is where I land, right about here, is, no, 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 see, when we partake of the bread and we partake of the cup, Jesus' humanity, His physical body was slaughtered on a cross and He died. And He rose again from the dead on the third day. And 40 days later, He ascended. His humanity, not His deity, he ascended as a human being to the right hand of the Father and He is there today in His human resurrected body. His human nature. It's not here. But there is a promised, serious, real, spiritual feeding of the soul of Christians as we partake of the bread and of the wine, of the emblems, the symbols that connect us. We're saying outwardly, yes, His sacrifice is mine. His blood was shed for me. There's a real spiritual presence after hearing the Word read, hearing the Word preached, Souls being stirred by the very ubiquitous presence of the Holy Spirit and then partaking 
of the bread and of the cup. So, that I'm clear what I'm saying is these words of Jesus, this is my body. It does not mean the physical body of the incarnate Christ materializes somehow in the bread and in the cup when we consecrate them and partake as Christians. Now why? First, go back to the upper room. The most natural human linguistic way to understand any person who takes any object and says, this object is a person's body. The most natural way to understand that is clearly it represents this person's body. If I'm sitting down with you trying to explain a football player or something, okay, here, give me a salt shaker, and I take a salt shaker and say, this is me, okay, over here, the pepper, this is you. No one's thinking, oh my gosh, they got changed. But it's clear, even with the to-be verb, the verb of identity normally doesn't always mean identity. Our identical too. It there clearly meant without anyone having to exegete it for you, to unpack it, to parse it out, you just understood, okay, this represents me and that represents you. So when Jesus is sitting there and He takes the unleavened bread of the Passover meal and He breaks it and He holds it and He says, this is my body. It's just to me, it's obvious he means it represents my body. Because he's sitting there with his body, he's got hands on the end, and his body with hands are holding something other than his body. The bread is my body. It's representing my body as you partake and eat it and keep doing this because his body is going to be doing something the next day. In other words, it's, it's the same, remember the Passover meal. When he does that, there's a lamb they haven't eaten yet. They're getting ready to sink their teeth into this delicious lamb. And that lamb, every year Jews would celebrate this Passover lamb and partake. They knew that that lamb isn't the actual lamb or lambs that were slaughtered in Egypt 1,400 years later on the night that the death angel passed through. They were remembering. It represented that day. That's what we do in remembrance of Him. Let me just give you one other. If I, if I, if I showed you, say, hey, see that picture of my family, my wife, and my kids? Who, who is that? This is my family. No one thinks that I mean by that my family is made of paper. They know I mean it represents my family. Now, what I want you to do, I want you to turn to John chapter 6. Because Roman Catholics will often point to John 6, starting with verse 43 all the way through 63 to argue that eating Christ's body actually is precisely the point here. Okay? See, in verse 48, and here's the argument that Jesus, this is before 
long before the Passover meal, he's looking forward to this Passover meal and what communion or the Eucharist will mean. Okay. So in verse 48, Jesus says to his fellow Jews, I am the bread of life. Okay, let me get, so you get the context. Do you remember? Jesus fed 5,000. He goes across the lake, Sea of Galilee. The crowds followed Him. Jesus, in the only way He can, just nailed them. He just totally missing it. I know why you're here. You want more food in your belly. And you're missing the whole point of the miracle. That's how this whole discourse is starting off. So you got this, you're looking for physical food and you're totally missing it. Okay, so now let's go again. First, pick it up in verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I, Jesus, am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is My flesh. Okay, now there... They're shocked. What are you talking about? So read on. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're still not getting it. And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on My flesh and drinks My blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For My flesh is true food and My blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on My flesh and drinks My blood abides in Me and I in Him. And then in the text, Jesus starts to also say, oh man, even His disciples are really getting confused. See verse 60? And when many of His disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? So Jesus goes on to give the key to interpreting what He has been saying in verse 63, so they don't miss the point. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. In other words, don't get hung up on the references to my flesh. Into, into, into my blood. I'm speaking figuratively. He's saying I'm referring to a spiritual action. Not a physical action of eating my flesh. Now, now back in the 1500s, 
There, there's debates going on and on. And then, and they're in the same room at one time, Luther and Zwingli, having a debate over this issue. Martin Luther turns to John chapter 6, and he quotes verse 53, probably in the only way Martin Luther could do it. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you, my fellow Zwingli. And then Jesus, I mean, Luther grabs a chalk and he writes on the board, this is my body and circles is. I guess he's won his case. But Zwingli stands up and turns to verse 63 of John 6. He quotes, Luther, Luther, Luther. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. I think Zwingli was right. And let me just suggest that in John 6, we go back to the beginning of this speech and look and see what he said. Go back to verse 27. Jesus says, remember the issue. You just want your bellies filled. They got their bellies filled in the wilderness, manna, 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 and they all died. This is not true life. Okay, got to get the con- Here we go. Start with verse 27. I'll read slowly. Do not work for the food that perishes, but work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. That's Himself. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. Then they said to Him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent Himself. And so they said to Him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you, Jesus? What work do you perform? Our fathers, under Moses, ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And so, in the context, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is a person. Right? For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. Here's the key now. Jesus said to them, 
I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in Me shall never Jesus calls Himself the bread of life. Saying He is the One who pre-existed. He is God. He came from heaven to become a human being in soul and in body. He came from heaven He's that man standing in front of them. And He is to be received by eating and drinking. And in so doing, He says, your hunger will be satisfied. Thirst and drinking, my blood will be quenched. The question in the text is, what is the eating? And the drinking. And it's clear in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. In the discourse, the eating... And the drinking that Jesus is referring to are clearly spiritual movements or acts of the heart in seeing, viewing, receiving, believing, trusting, welcoming. That's John 6. Remember what John said in John chapter 1? To all who received Him. To them, He gave the right to become the children of God. Whosoever shall believe shall not perish, but have eternal life. So He uses this Old Testament metaphor, bread from heaven. He said, I'm the bread that pointed to Me. You want to talk about life, not just for 40 years, but eternal life? God sent you eternal bread. It is the Lamb of God sacrificed for you. Believe in Him. The eating that He's referring to and the drinking of the blood is hearing and trusting and believing and clinging to the truth of Jesus and the Gospel. So, I think Zwingli, in his argument with Luther, was much closer to the meaning of what we are about to be doing here Partaking of the bread and drinking of the cup. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And so when Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 53, Eat the flesh of the Son of Man. He did not mean that literal human flesh. 
needs to be physically consumed by you. It's not what he's talking about. But his words were spirit and life. We are to feed. Oh yeah, metaphor is wonderful for all kinds of instruction. We are to feed on the truth of the incarnate God in human flesh, Jesus Christ. We are to feed on the truth that God became man in order to be the once and for all and final sacrifice for the absolute forgiveness of sins, for the purchasing of eternal life. Oh, we should drink it. We should feed it. We should look at real drinking and feeding and constantly put it up to, how are my desires feeding and fellowshipping and loving the truth and letting my mind and my soul be filled with the Gospel? How does that feel right now? I'm starving. I haven't eaten in four and a half hours. We should constantly use metaphor. Say, oh God, why do I not hunger for you? It is his flesh that was sacrificed. It is his substitutionary sacrifice that bore the wrath of God that all of us sinners who are being saved deserved. Oh, we should feed on that reality. So as we sing, hear the music playing, We'll be passing out the bread and the cup to all of you who are baptized believers. Take and hold. And together, let's continue to prepare our hearts to feed. To to be nourished with our affections by the very special presence of Christ in the person of the indwelling Holy Spirit in our midst as we ingest the bread that is a symbol of His body sacrificed. As we drink of the cup that is a remembrance that Jesus went to the cross to pour out His blood in death for us. And as we are doing this, we are remembering, we are cherishing, we are proclaiming the centrality of Jesus Christ as the Savior of sinners like us. And we'll continue to do this until He returns.